Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Rajiv Vinikota is a pioneering social entrepreneur with a passion for civic education. In past years, he co-founded the Seed Foundation, the nation's first network of public college preparatory boarding schools for underserved children and then served as vice president of the Aspen Institute, where he launched and led the Youth and Engagement Programs Division devoted to youth leadership development, civic engagement, and opportunity. Today, he is president of the Institute for Citizens and Scholars, leading its mission to cultivate the talent, ideas, and networks that develop lifelong effective citizens. In this episode, we speak about a range of issues, from building unlikely alliances among funders and the importance of patient philanthropic capital, to his vision for how the nation can come together to solve the problems of our communities, states, regions, and nation. We begin by hearing the remarkable journey of his family to the U.S. and learn how reading the paper and debating the news with his father over the dinner table influenced his view of civic responsibility. So I know that your parents are from India, but I don't know from where or when they came. Do you mind if I ask about about your family? Not at all. Actually, it's a, it's a very important part, both of, uh, of course, my family history, but just of who I am. Both of my parents are from Andhra Pradesh, uh, which is a state in southeastern India. Uh, when my parents were growing up there, it was one of the, if not the poorest state in all of India. Uh, my mother grew up in a town of 300,000 people. My father grew up in a very tiny village uh, and where he was a rice farmer. There's only about 500 people or so that lived in that town. My grandfather was a rice farmer. He and my grandmother had six children, four boys, two girls. They earned 30 rupees a month. They spent 24 rupees a month, ensuring that all six of their children got an education. Um, all ended up uh, graduating from college. Uh, advanced degrees for most of them. My father was an engineer, a few other doctors and engineers in the family, all of whom have ended up here in the United States over time. I'm, I'm marveling at not just the trajectory. That's, that's a story that, that I love to hear, but also that back a generation, those people even met a woman from the large city, a man from the rice farm. How did that even happen? Well, Jay, I'm going to try to tell you the short version of this, but uh, and then we can dive deeper into it. My father is was a genius. Uh, he uh, went to uh, college at a very young age, went to engineering college. Uh, and then at some point soon after that, he won one of two worldwide scholarships to do his PhD in civil engineering in Switzerland. <laughs> so he shows up in Switzerland, not knowing French, without a coat in Lausanne. <laughs> literally teaches himself French while he's doing his PhD uh, and writes his, P- his civil engineering PhD. Uh, the people at Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne are so surprised and impressed that they offer him a job to come back and be a professor, uh, at which time he says, I can do that, but I need to go back home and get married. So he goes back to India to get an arranged marriage uh, because that's how things happened then in those sure. days. And so here is this young man, uh, incredibly accomplished from a small uh, village and in the process of uh, meeting other potential matches, he meets my mother and uh, she was and is 10 years younger. Um, and uh, they got married 
And uh, literally after they got married, uh, my mother moved to uh, Switzerland within the next six months uh, to live with my father. And then I was born there uh, in 1971. My sister was born there in 1975. And then we all moved to the United States uh, three years later. Well, that, that's another huge leap because to go from that's Lausanne right. to Milwaukee is not the usual trajectory either. So how in the world did that happen? <laughs> so the short version of that is that my father, my parents decided that they wanted to raise their children in a place with uh, you know great opportunity, a land that was less xenophobic than Switzerland. And so my dad actually got a uh, visiting professorship at uh, Cornell University in Ithaca. So we moved to Ithaca first, and it was during that time that my father got job offers, and we ended up moving to Milwaukee, and he was a professor at Marquette University for 30 years. How was this for you as a kid, though? How old were you when the family moved from over there to over here? Yeah, so moved, uh, yeah, moved from Switzerland to the United States when I was uh, seven, about to turn eight, um, and then moved to Milwaukee a year and a half after that. Uh, so uh, I would say it was uh, it, it certainly taught me resilience um, and being able to navigate new uncharted waters. I had to learn English. In fact, I did uh, first, second and third grade all in one year uh, at Bell Sherman Elementary School in Ithaca, New York. Wow. Um, yep. I'm, I'm just imagining that because that makes you truly an international, not just because of your family, but having to move from one country to another, one language to another. And then after you make the move one city to another, those are very different places, Ithaca and Milwaukee. So that's a lot of uh, adaptability, like you say, resilience. But it's also it must have made you a person who's able to talk to anybody about anything, either that or leave you know the room when anybody was talking about something so obviously it's the former what what uh, so for a kid trying to navigate that road how was that especially in in you know in up in wisconsin so i mean it, it you look at it i think in two very different ways uh in the experience and then in hindsight right um so in the experience itself i would say that um largely i had a very happy childhood i uh, was able to do the things i wanted to i excelled in academics i did a number of other things outside of academia uh including especially debate and playing basketball were my two other big activities and uh loved them all had a great group of friends uh went to a public high school that was uh incredibly demanding and uh, also prepared me quite well for college um, I would say that, you know, I also had a couple of challenges being the the uh, uh, the Indian kid. I mean, I wasn't the only one, but there were very few uh, learning how to navigate social customs and culture was very difficult. And especially since you didn't have parents or friends around you who necessarily could take you by the hand. Um, and, you know, it, it, it just made everything just a little bit harder. There was friction in everything. Um, uh, and so. Uh, looking back on it, I would say, yes, you're right to your to our earlier point that, you know, it taught me to, you know, kind of persevere. But I would also say that it taught me to never be comfortable. And that's got both a good and a bad side to it, right? Because you never kind of felt of the place. But at, yet at the same time, you had to work very hard to be able to understand yourself in that space. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is, and this is really core to the work I do now, it just taught me a intense 
personal, emotional, uh, developed attachment to this country and what it stands for. Yes, it's, you know, we've we've got to work on improving it every single day. And God knows there's a lot of things that we've done wrong. But it also provides us with the type of opportunities where you can have uh, people like us coming to this country and have the opportunity to succeed um, and have the opportunity to give back. And so I don't take those opportunities lightly. And, you know, the work that I do, as I've been doing in the nonprofit sector for the last 30 years, is one of the ways in which I get back and make sure that I give my little piece of, uh, of both thanks and uh, paying it forward. There's so much that we could talk about in all of what you just shared. I want to dive just quickly, if you don't mind, into that professional piece, because you are devoting so much of your life to this area of civics. And you said something in an article uh, that many of us of a certain age, I love that phrase, being of a certain age myself, uh, that remember uh, learning civics is a part of the required school curriculum. So before we go any further, what do you remember? Because that's that goes back to your high school, I guess, right? You didn't have it before. You probably studied something in middle school that was really history classes. And then you had some kind of civics curriculum. What was that? What do you remember? Yeah. So actually, for me, I was uh, uh, lucky enough that it did actually begin in middle school. And uh, I clearly remember in our classes that we then used to call J social studies. They weren't called history, right? It was right. it was social studies every year. Right. Um, that they were explicit portions of my sixth, seventh, and eighth grade that were focused around how does government function. Um, and I distinctly remember in both seventh and eighth grade having debates uh, literally set up in our social studies class on different issues where mm-hmm. we'd be asked to talk, there'd be rebuttals, you go back and forth and so on. So that was actually one way that you were not only learning knowledge, but you were applying that knowledge, applying skills of debating and being able to uh, 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 understand the other side and be able to take multiple points of view. So I do specifically remember within that social studies program, um, uh, those kinds of opportunities. And then in um, in high school, it was really a government class. It was a, you know, how does government function uh, class, but it was also imbued uh, into our American history class. Uh, I'm one of those people who just loves American history. I will say just as a point of fact, I'm uh, the book American pageant that I read for my AP American history class. Now, you know, 20 editions later or so is the same book that my daughter is reading and it's changed a lot, but it's one of those connections to uh, a history that is not only about history, but understanding how individual experiences and how government functions really does play a significant role in how our country has evolved since, uh, you know, over the last 400 years. As you're talking about that, I'm imagining you're in a classroom, there are a whole bunch of other students, and each of us receive that in different ways. You had your own background coming from, you know, parents from one place, then being born in another, then moving yourself mm-hmm. and having an appetite, obviously, to learn. That That's clear from a few minutes of the conversation. So not everybody receives things the same way. I'm wondering if because of that kind of diverse, you know, huge global background that you had, if that made uh, kind of a ready field for the planting of these ideas or if and and your your interest in pursuing them. Um, so when you go back and talk, I don't know if you had a chance to talk to your old classmates, you know, from the debate team or the basketball team, but 
do they remember things the same way? And I'm asking this because I eventually do want to ask you about how you're applying these lessons yourself in getting other people to appreciate what you do appreciate. But maybe we didn't all appreciate them at the same time. So did they? Did they understand things to be as important as you did? Jay, I think that's a great question. The the best way of talking about this, I often say uh, with my work, uh, the work that, uh, you know, Citizens and Scholars does, that uh, we learn civics in very different ways. We learn uh, these concepts of being well-informed and productively engaged and committed to our democracy in very different ways. So you brought up the school uh, uh, channel or mechanism. I will tell you, that's actually not the way, and it shouldn't surprise you, that I learned the most about how uh, to be civically prepared. I actually learned it by reading the Milwaukee Journal with my father at the dinner table every night, right? That is one of the things that we did. We'd read it, we'd talk about it, we'd have debates about it. I'd learn about it from the things that my father would tell me. I would debate other things back and so on and so forth. And so one of the things that I think is so important to the work that we do in trying to develop this next generation of citizens is just understanding that so many of us learn to be citizens, not first and foremost in schools, but in other places and through other forms, right? It could be like I did at the family dining room table. It could be in a community institution in a faith-based institution. It could be in higher education because you are on the debate team there. It could be online as many people learn so much nowadays, right? Or it could be at your first place of work. And one of the things that we as a society you know, do at our own peril is try to over-focus our time to trying to say that civic preparedness is a sole responsibility of our schools. It is not, it never has been, and that's not the way that most people learn. Well, and not only that, but it sounds like from from what you've said and from what I've experienced that, in fact, there's been this kind of abdication. If the government and schools had a responsibility for this at all, first of all, it was determined on a state basis. And then secondly, many have just said, well, we're not going to do that or they don't do it in the same way that you're describing. Um, So but, but this is really fascinating about you at the dinner table. Who was initiating that? Do you remember? Was it your father first? Did you come to the same table and say, well, what are you reading? It's different in every family. It is different in every family, Jay. And it goes back to your earlier question. So look, I'm innately curious, right? And uh, and so I love to read. And so put the paper in front of me and I will read it. I mean, I can tell you, even yesterday, I, I moved stuff off my dining room table so that I could pull out the Sunday section of the, you know, the Portland Herald Tribune, right? And just sit there and have lunch and and just read through it page by page. My wife makes fun of me because she can go through the newspaper in 15 minutes. (laughs) And and I haven't even gone through the front section in the first half an hour, right? She's like, there isn't that much to read. I'm like, yes, there is. (laughs) So um, I think you're you're right that you need to kind of uh, inculcate a curiosity in order to do this. And for me, it came just because I have a curiosity around reading. I would say when you look and engage with kind of those newest generation of of citizens, that they're actually very curious too. Their curiosity emanates uh, partly from the diversity of who they are. They're the most diverse generation in our history Um, by the fact that they actually see the major problems that society is grappling with and are very interested in trying to figure out how do we go about solving this? 
And lastly, and maybe in some ways, most importantly, they're digital natives, right? They just mm-hmm. get their information in different ways, but they're also curious in that way. Uh, for the longest time as a parent, I always worried about like, what is my daughter doing on her phone? And then you realize that, you know, actually, at least in the case of my daughter, a lot of it is she is teaching herself all kinds of things. And thankfully, and hopefully she's teaching herself the right things, but that is how they channel their curiosity. Right. Well, that, that's something I wanted to ask you about. And, th- and that is that, and as we self curate, it's not the same experience as sitting down with your father and debating. Or reading the paper that everybody else in your town is reading. Right. Those two different experiences, which I know, and there are advantages and disadvantages to having the three broadcast networks of my childhood, um, because then you've only got the three different stories and it's leaving out a lot of people and a lot of stuff. Uh, and the local newspaper doesn't tell all the stories either, although right. you can learn a lot more. Um, so as we think about this generation and the curiosity that you see in it, that kind of field that's that's ripe for planting um, ideas uh, and letting them grow on their own, that is there some danger that that you are working in this institutional context that we'll talk about next? to overcome not not that there's a crisis in curiosity but maybe that there's a um a a problem that has to do with the the messages that people are receiving because of this nature of self-curation and also a lot of artificial information jay when we talk about the major pieces or categories of what it means to be civically prepared the the first one we talk about is being civically well informed and not only does it require an understanding of government and how it functions and the historical underpinnings, but the other two pieces there are getting your information from multiple and diverse sources, right? So you, you even if you're curating, making sure that you're getting it from a broad enough set of an information set so that you're getting multiple uh, uh, perspectives. Mm-hmm. And then the third one, which is just as important is to be media and social media literate, right? To be able to discern and differentiate between information, disinformation, misinformation, opinions, facts, and so on. And being able to build those skills are really more and more critical the further we are going down this uh, this timeline. Uh, it's one of the interesting ways that I talk about how even the definition of what citizenship is changes over time. Um, certainly in our age, the importance of curating and uh, separating fact from friction and disinformation and misinformation might've been there, but it wasn't as critical a set of skills as now. Well, let's let's talk about about citizenship for a second, and especially through the lens of of the organization that you you lead um, at the Institute. Can you talk a bit about, um, first of all, why you're there, why the Institute's important, and then how you're helping people to understand what a citizen is right now? Sure. Uh, Look, we believe that democracy is really at the knife's edge, um, and that we're in this moment in time where There's deep polarization that's preventing further progress, uh, that you've got a degradation of public discourse, of trying to work across difference towards solving uh, our problems, that even when you have successful attempts to to deal with issues, that there's divides that get in the way. And um, uh, we're seeing 
ruptures in behaviors and norms and habits that we've taken for granted for a long time that we need for a self-governing uh, democracy. And yet at the same time, I'm an optimist because I see 44 million young people between the ages of 10 and 19 who are about to enter the public square. And if we make sure that they're civically well-informed, that they're productively engaged, that means not only voting, but engaged across difference and working in their communities. And then finally, that they're committed to democracy, that they trust their government and institutions and their neighbors, and they have the hope for democracy, that they can ensure that this country tips in the right way, right? We need to make sure, I, I often say democracy is a verb, right? And I've taken that from someone else who's, but it has to be an active work, right? And we have to ensure that democracy continues uh, as opposed to sliding towards autocracy. We need to understand that uh, we need a liberty that functions effectively in balance with the ability to have uh, freedoms that all of us uh, need. And then finally, we need to be able to have that freedom of expression flourish as opposed to cancel culture. So now the work of the Institute for Citizens and Scholars is how do we ensure that that group of 10 to 19 year olds and the group of 20 to 24 year olds who are right in front of them are going to take the mantle? They want it, but we need to make sure that they're prepared for it, that they've built the muscle to be civically prepared and be able to help our country go in the right direction. Just before we go too much further, you said they want it. Why do you think that, why do you believe that? Uh, they're, they're active. Um, they are more active than the two generations before them, of which I am one. <laughs> um, and um, you, I mean, you see them uh, actively, uh, uh, you know, you can see obvious examples, right? George Floyd and Parkland and so on and so forth. Um, but they, they talk about and the surveys show that they want to engage and this is also the interesting thing here, Jay, is that to them, ideological differences are not nearly as important as trying to work towards solutions, right? So they're of the mindset that there's these big issues that we've got to figure out how to solve, that they want to solve them, but they need the infrastructure, right? They need, as I call it, the adult scaffolding around them to be able to both practice and to be able to be able to understand how does our government function? How do you make change? How do you make progress happen in productive ways from us so that they can actually then take all their energy in the correct direction? But they may or may not want the particular scaffolding that we've built, right? I mean, when it comes to the schools or the other institutions that they may or may not trust, the trust factor that you mentioned before, um, we've talked about that a lot in the series, actually, because of how it impacts the way people perceive funding from and funding to institutions. Um, and so all the examples you cited are, are, are a testament to the fact that people who are younger folks in society are engaged in a way that's dramatic and profound and impactful. Um, they may or may not choose to be uh, active in the institutions that were built prior to their agency. Um, how, where does that put you if, when you think about the Institute in terms of both encouraging their involvement, um, their, their agency, but then being able to choose how they're going to apply it? Because they may or may not want to be Democrats, Republicans working for universities that may or may not ex exist in 10 years, you know, institutions of government that agencies may change. Where, where do they go? 
So the question of how do we equip young people so that they can then take that and figure out how they apply it either within an institutional framework or from a framework to be able to make different kinds of change uh, it's a difficult one, right? So um, you need to have a base of understanding for how change happens in the current structure to then decide whether or not that's the right way to do it or then to change it and develop it over time. Um, I sometimes say, Jay, that uh, we know that change continually happens. Uh, some of it happens within systems. Some of it happens without systems. But in both cases, you need to understand that it happens in such a way that you still have a functioning civil society throughout. What do I mean by that in an intellectual sense, right? Is that, you know, I actually am a fan of Edmund Burke. I believe that, you know, that the French Revolution uh, was a pretty awful thing. I believe that most revolutions, almost every single revolution has failed over the long term because it has tried to move institutions and practices and habits too quickly. You need to do it over time. And this is some of the knowledge that we as, uh, as adults can pass along. Now, young people may look at us and say, oh, gosh, I can't believe they're saying that, right? And I believe that every generation functions in that manner relative to uh, its older, wiser adults. And so there's a delicate balance there that needs to always happen. But if you do a good job of building those habits and norms and knowledge base and so on, you do need to take a step back and let them then you know, decide how they want to utilize it. You know, just as you're talking about this, uh, I'm thinking about how someone who is, let's say, 16 thinks about January 6th. There was I didn't see anybody in that crowd that was under the age of maybe 30, maybe, maybe wrong, but it looked like there were a lot of older people beating up on the Capitol. And so regardless of how one feels about that, um, I can imagine that that's uh, it would be hard for uh, for people coming up in the world uh, to say, I want to be a part of of that. That doesn't look very responsible and, you know, um, level headed to me. Uh, I'm sure you're running into that as well as you talk to emerging generations who are thinking about how to apply their 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 citizenship. Um, that uh, if the example set before them is not of people who are getting along, but it's more like the revolution of France <laughs> you described. It must be kind of hard to get them to to. Uh, to sit down with people who they were just watching on television beating up on the Capitol? Well, first thing is that um, it's not that hard to get young people to see other young people as change agents. And so a lot of our work is about supporting, we have a program called the Civic Spring Fellows uh, that uh, does national as well as regional support of young people who are really trying to drive change in their communities. And there to me, I mean, just from an uh, energy perspective, but also I think to young people, to be able to see their peers doing work that's making change not only creates role models, but hopefully creates mechanisms for young people who may feel like they're not part of the system to be able to get their hooks into how do I engage with others uh, to try to make sure that our society continues to, uh, to improve and, and, and progress. To that other point, this, this notion of 
how do you get across ideological divides? Uh, what some people kind of call civil discourse, what I call being able to engage across difference towards common solutions um, is a very difficult set of habits and practices that you need to develop. It's been done, I would say, in a super majority of people in this country for an extended period of time. It's not like we don't know how to do this. Um, we even have content that exists around how we go about doing this. So it's it's hard in that we need to get to young people uh, effectively and with enough time for them to practice these habits. Uh, but it's not hard in that these capacities don't exist or role models don't exist. They exist everywhere you look if you actually are willing to look, especially in our local communities. If you take your eye off of Washington, D.C. for a while and just look around you, you'll actually see this happening everywhere. Right. Well, I, I do want to ask you more about what's going on in terms of uh, your support for this work through the Institute. Can you talk mm -hmm. a bit about that? Because I guess there are two aspects. One is um, that you're funding some of this activity, right? Fellows and so forth. And then other people are funding you. So maybe first, can you talk about how you are investing uh, in uh, both the next generation, but also civic understanding generally? And then we can talk also about who's interested in supporting that. Sure. So um, the Institute for Citizens and Scholars, and I've called it CNS, uh, um, really seeks to do two very different things that support each other at once. Number one is we've had 75 years of history of supporting fellows, uh, that is uh, business leaders, especially academic leaders, and now young people who are doing work in their uh, ecosystems to be able to develop the civic capacities of, of young people everywhere. And that work is largely focused around trying to identify people who are doing that work and then supporting them financially and also with networks so mm -hmm. that they can continue to do that work, be it in academia, be it in the policy space, and now young people in their communities. In the second piece of the work that we're trying to do is how do we actually work in specific places that lots of young people engage? Colleges and universities, their first place of work, in urban and rural communities, certainly in schools, but more importantly, outside of it during their high school age. And how do they uh, develop both the knowledge and then the skills that are required to be effective citizens? And so that work requires a tremendous amount of partnership. That partnership, we are able to bring together very different ideologies, right, center, and left together to work together towards common cause. Let me give you a couple of examples here, Jay. Um, when we, when I first did my first white paper to try to understand what was the state of civic education, of civic learning in this space in 2019, uh, we were able to syndicate that project through funding from the Hewlett Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and the Charles Koch Foundation. Uh, which was a very interesting set of funders coming together. And it is one of the ways that we have continued to do our work. So uh, when we uh, put together a group of college presidents, uh, because we felt it was important to recenter uh, civic preparedness as a core responsibility of higher education institutions, we went out and got a real broad set of ideologically diverse college and university leaders, people who are not usually in the room together 
mm-hmm. people whose simple act of being in these unlikely alliances would raise eyebrows and go, wow, something interesting is happening there. And then a third example is we just rolled out last week the first ever framework around how do you go about measuring civic learning or civic preparedness. So how do you actually know whether or not we're making progress? Mm -hmm. And in building that framework, we worked with 70 people from across the ideological spectrum, but not only in the civic learning space, also in workforce development, character formation, national and community service, as well as civic learning, because we realize those adjacent spaces really do similar types of activities in terms of developing young people. And once again, a set of unlikely alliances coming together to do that kind of work. So Jay, I haven't given you a short bite-sized piece to describe this because this work is very nuanced in how we come together to make this happen. Well, no, but it does get to the heart of something I did want to ask you, which is that if you have support from, you know, Hewlett to Bloomberg to uh, Coke for a program, there are two ways that happens. One is uh, that uh, people just naturally see that this is an interesting place. Like you said, something interesting is going on here, but it's more likely in fundraising that we intentionally seek out diverse funders, just like we seek out diverse programming and diverse presenters and diverse, you know, uh, curators. So how is it that you came about finding those supporters? Is that intentional that CNS said, we want to make sure that we're getting support across the political spectrum, across the funding spectrum? Uh, It's very intentional that we have gone about building these unlikely alliances of right, center and left coalitions in all of the work that we're doing. Um, It uh, was important to us for a couple of different reasons. Number one is the durability of any of our work requires that we bring very different thoughts together in developing our solutions. Because if we make it too one-sided in terms of a political or ideological lens, if the pendulum swings, those ideas will also swing out with them. And instead, our intention is to bring durable solutions, and that requires that we work across uh, ideological spectrums. The second thing is that I strongly believe that the best ideas come from pressure testing, pushing, and uh, bringing together this almost like crucible of really interesting ideas. And so we've already seen it in the work that we've done over three years that some of the best ideas have come in bringing together people of very different perspectives together to try to create a new synthesis of sorts. Now, you, you've uh, talked about this in, in, in a way that de-emphasizes the kind of polarities that are often discussed in, in media, uh, probably for the advantage of getting eyeballs and attention, and that, that's helpful to media. Um, but here, when it comes to funding, there is still uh, this concern that the funding that supports our programs will influence them. By having a range of funding, you seem to be addressing that as well as welcoming different viewpoints. The reason I'm raising this is because particularly when it comes to anything that's perceived as political, the idea that there's money coming in causes other people to say, you know what, the problem is the money. Uh, How do you feel about the influence of money, not just in politics, that's probably a separate program, but (laughs) money on, um, on the kind of work that you're doing, which is 
clearly it's, it, it's the ultimate expression of the not-for-profit work. It, this is definitely social good. Uh, it, but nevertheless, you have to go out and raise money in order to do it. What kind of influence, if any, do you think donors have over program and ultimately, especially when it's something involving citizenship or civics, about how we characterize those things, how people should be good citizens? Does money have some effect? And if so, how do you moderate against that institutionally? Um, when it comes to, to thinking about philanthropy, it would be naive to say that money uh, and the influence of donor doesn't have an effect on, on the work. That is actually one of the reasons that we seek to find such disparate uh, folks' ideologies, lived experiences, uh, and, and bringing together those people to develop any of our projects. Um, one of the other ways that we're able to do that is that we not only seek this broad set of funding, but we also seek the types of institutions that these philanthropists fund to be at the table with us to develop the work itself. Mm -hmm. So you will not only see funding, which we have to raise in order to, as you said, Jay, for, you know, move the social good, uh, develop a flourishing civil society. But we also want to bring the content experts from these different ideologies into the room to try to work towards common cause. I think by doing that, uh, we achieve two things. Number one, uh, I think from an external optics perspective, people can't simply say, oh, you're just trying to do X or you're just trying to do Y. And I think that's really, really important. And second, I think that the product itself is better in the end. Um, in trying to tell people, hey, look, like if you think, for example, that you know, it's really important that young people first understand knowledge before they apply that to their expertise uh, versus other people who say, no, you actually need to develop a connection and experience first before young people will even want to engage in the knowledge. I think that is a worthy exercise to try to debate and figure out then how is it that you approach young people and how do you try to bring these two uh, competing ideas together in some way that actually addresses both of those very important concepts. Um, so there is always a nugget of, of truth in all of these ideas and trying to pull that uh, and then try to bring it together is frankly the art of this work. A lot of the appeal of projects these days for not-for-profit organizations has to do with impact. People want to see impact. And often that's conflated with, okay, I put my dollars here and I'm going to see something that is more perhaps ideological in nature. Or if it's social service, then more people get fed at this age, you know, this local agency, or if it's a university, there are more scholarships provided to certain kinds of students. But impact is the watchword. When you're all these things you're talking about here sound to me at a 30,000 foot level, enormously impactful. But how do you describe that impact when it's project by project, person by person, so that people can see the investments you make today are really what shore up the foundation of everything that we live for. Jay, I love this question about impact. One of the things we haven't talked about is my background uh, academically. I'm actually a molecular biologist by training. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I come to this very much with a, with a science background and frankly, an interest in knowing what I'm testing and trying to understand what I'm trying to see before I even begin the work. Now, the interesting thing in the civic uh, learning space is that we haven't really defined for ourselves what the outcomes are. And so we're in this interesting and exciting stage where 
we're building the plane while we're flying it. This work that I was just telling you about earlier that brought together a host of different institutions to create a measurement map that allows us to know whether or not we're successful is the next attempt to do this, but not in an ideologically uh, uh, stunted way, but rather in a broad way. And so we have identified not only a map that starts to tell us whether or not we're making an impact, but has also identified more than 180 existing measurement tools uh, that uh, have been applied to this map. So now people can go to our website, can go to our measurement tools and say, okay, I'd like to understand critical thinking application uh, in the American history space. Well, here are the tools uh, that could be used um, and you know, here's where they're available. Some of them will require you to pay for them. Some of them are available for free, so on and so forth. The next phase of our work, Jay, is to now test the validity of all these tools that we've uh, uh, actually identified to see kind of, okay, of all of these, which ones do we think uh, actually have the base to be able to really tell us whether or not we're making progress? That's all to say that it's just now that we're starting to be able to tell ourselves, are we really making an impact when it comes to understanding whether or not young people are well-informed, whether they're productively engaging, and whether or not they're committed to democracy. And we'll need to start applying that to all of the projects that we do and others do. As you're saying this, it strikes me that um, there are a lot of really good people who work in government and work across nonprofits and work in companies and then foundations and all these people are most of them are really trying hard to make the world better for their kids. But oftentimes these evaluative measurements may not exist. So if you build a framework for that, I can imagine the impact being beyond the organization, beyond even this discussion of civics, something that could be useful as we think about anything that we do. If we don't have, if we don't have a way of measuring it, is it really happening at all? And when we look at everything that's happened in the last few years, I'm wondering if this very thing that you're doing right now has gotten easier or more difficult. If you built the measures, it must make it a little easier to, to know what you're doing right and what you'd like to do more of and better and where others can apply those lessons. But at the same time, we've watched this kind of fracturing of of the you know the civic square and uh is that because of the absence of being able to measure these things that they are all kind of at one another's throats so measurement uh, is no panacea but it's an important piece of of this work right um we need to be able jay as you said to understand whether or not we're making progress at the same time you have to balance that with you know everyone kind of feels that something is off, right? <laughs> you don't need to measure it to be able to say, you know what, things aren't where they need to be. And so uh, part of our work is also, how do we start to take that issue on, right? And, and that issue, at least to me, is taken on by recognizing that citizen development, civic preparedness, civic learning has to be active work. 
I think one of the things that I've just recognized about the last 40 years is that we have de-emphasized this over and over and over again, right? I was part of the education reform movement before I came into this space. And I remember how much we emphasized math and reading and English scores, because that were those were the things we could measure, right? And so get, where did all the funding go? They went into those spaces. Starting about 15 years or so ago, we said, oh my gosh, all of our future workforce will need to be in the STEM space. So we need to emphasize STEM investments. And we did that. And each time these things happened, social studies and civics fell further and further and further behind, certainly in terms of investments, certainly in terms of focus, certainly in terms of thinking about what role it played both within schools and in our society. It doesn't surprise me that when you think of the compounding effect of half a century of underinvesting in the space that we are where we are now, right? We haven't invested in this. I don't need a measure to tell me that. I know that we need to do all this activity. Measurement can start to be helpful in telling us where do we think that we can really make the best and biggest difference, but we need huge investment. We need a societal push and commitment to ensuring that we're developing citizens in a way that, frankly, we've never done in this country. And I know that there's an effort that you've been a part of to try and, and ensure that the government makes that investment. Often we've seen at the same time that government has pulled back from various things around the world. Uh, and that in that in the wake of that, that absence, that vacuum, nonprofits will often step in, not just with services, but there will be f- dollars to fund those activities. And art, the arts are another example of this, of course, that right. as there was more money to stem, there was less money for arts, just as there was for uh, this kind of education. So are you seeing that uh, the philanthropic world is stepping up um, along with the government to address these issues? And if not, what do they need to do? Yeah, I have seen some philanthropic leaders stepping up in this space, but not nearly enough, uh, not deeply enough, and not yet thinking in terms of the long-term investments that are required. Uh, Frankly, Jay, these types of investments uh, require a little bit of patient capital. Uh, Some of the changes may happen in a year or two, and they need to, but a lot of the changes are about ensuring that this generation becomes the types of citizens that we want. And that takes time. Um, And um, when we're in this world where we're just now also developing the indicators to tell us whether or not we're making a difference, uh, that makes it even harder. As you earlier said, impact has become one of the watchwords of philanthropy. And it's only now that we're even able to start to measure these things. So we need philanthropy uh, to play a bigger role. Um, I think the work is even harder because... uh, A lot of people approach democracy and say, should I be giving to elections or should I be giving into this civic preparedness and civic learning? And you see an immediate return on elections. And frankly, we have overemphasized elections, the point of making every single one of them existential to our nation. And so all the oxygen gets sucked out of the room every two years 
when we're only dealing with the symptoms and not the root cause. And so we can keep on investing in elections, but then we're not actually solving the long-term problem, which is how do we ensure that we have thoughtful citizens who, to our earlier point, can actually look at information and assess it in the correct way, know how to engage in their communities, know how to work across difference, and are committed to democracy for the long term. Those kinds of things have to be true if we're going to get out of this vicious, vicious two-year cycle. Um, and that's been a challenge. As a as leader of an organization like this, you not only have to, I guess, bring all these different voices together towards these these goals, but you also have to cast this vision that's attractive, that shows people that, no, if I if I give today, even if it's patient capital and I can wait 10 years, that something is going to happen at the end of this. So what kind of vision are you casting and what do you imagine as you look 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead, the kind of thing that we can't expect anybody running for Congress or state legislature to be thinking about, really, because they're trying to worry about getting elected next year or two years from now. How, what kind of vision are you casting so that people can say, no, we got to invest today for the kids who are going to be here 20 years from now? The vision in some ways, Jay, is very simple. It's having a society that believes and engages in self-government. Um, what does that mean? It means you come together to actually solve the problems of our community, of our regions, our states, and our nation, that you're working across difference because we're such a diverse country. There's never been a democracy as diverse as this. There's, there's never been self-government like this before. And so being able to come together to solve our uh, biggest problems is at its core what we are trying to do. Um, if that happens, then we will be successful. Do you uh, do you still sit down with your dad and read the paper? <laughs> so how about I sit down with him and I read the iPad? <laughs> oh, I'm just wondering what those conversations are like now. So, you know, it's it's really hard in today's day and age and today's social media not to go down rabbit holes, right? So even as you're reading uh, uh, items and you bring your own worldview to it, it's very easy to forget that there are actually valid other sides to this issue. One of the things I love about my father is he's always brought that perspective to these issues. And he's taught in me an understanding that, you know what, if there's only one point of view, you haven't worked hard enough to figure out what the other points are. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.